Amen. Christ receives sinful people. Let me invite you to take your New Testaments with me and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin our time in God's Word, so you'll want to have your Bibles with you open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We want to put God's Word right in the forefront. The most important thing this morning in my talk is not how I say it, but what I say And it is powerful because it is not the words of people. It is the Word of God. With that, please listen and follow with me from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with whom I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, having appointed me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted in ignorantly, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and desiring of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There were 400 people who counted on Courtney Drugstore in St. Louis, Missouri, for their cancer treatment drugs. And it was shocking to learn after a period of time that those 4,000 people who were relying upon that pharmacy for their medication learned that the owner of that pharmacy, Robert Courtney, had been diluting his medication and pocketing hundreds of thousands of dollars for himself. And we hear a story like that, and it kind of makes us angry because we know that that medication could be the difference between life and death for people. How dare he dilute it? And yet the Apostle Paul has that very concern about the gospel in this letter to Timothy. He is concerned that the gospel is being diluted by people, by adding to it cultural values or religious traditions or religious fads. They were taking the gospel and diluting it with the kinds of philosophies that come from humanity and therefore robbing it of its ability to change lives and save souls. And so Paul writes this letter and he gives his son in the faith, Timothy, a challenge, a mission. His mission is our mission. Verse 3, he says, I urge you when you went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some to teach no other doctrine. The mission is teach only the message that came from Christ. He repeats this again in verse 18 when he says, this charge I commit to you that you may wage the good warfare. Keeping the gospel pure and undiluted is so important that Paul equates it to warfare, that it is the difference between life and death. In fact, this is such an important commission that Paul ends the letter with it. Look over at chapter 6 with me and verse 20. Paul says there, O Timothy, guard the deposit. That's his word for gospel. Guard the gospel that is entrusted to you and avoid the irrelevant babbling and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. Again, he urges Timothy to maintain the purity of the gospel. Of course, diluting the gospel is not just a problem in Paul's day, it's a problem in our day. And my concern is that the gospel has been so diluted by worldly philosophies, by religious traditions and fads, that it has lost its power, my friends, to change us as God wants us changed in His image. And it's losing its draw to the world to save souls. And so we need to take upon ourselves that same mission that Timothy was given. And that is 
to guard the gospel, to be remain faithful to the gospel alone, because as Paul would say, it is the gospel of God that has the power of God unto salvation. In fact, one author said that one of the defining characteristics of Paul in First and Second Timothy is that he is a man who is passionate about truth. And that's true. In fact, I find it interesting that each of the apostles at the end of their life, Paul at the end of his life, Peter at the end of his life, John at the end of his life, write letters to churches, not reminiscing about their past. Not talking about all of the great travels they've done in the name of the Lord. They write letters to other believers saying, make sure you maintain the purity of the gospel. Because as they leave and go off the scene, they want the next generation to come and know the gospel and all of its purity and to pass it on. One of the problems we face is that we have come to think that the church is like a human organization. And what we need to do is to pass on the church to the next generation by using the methods and messages of this age to capture the attention of our clients. And so what we do is we look at the world and say, what is the world interested in? What does the world like to hear? And we conform our message to meet the the ears of our clients so that they might be drawn so that the movement might be continued. (laughs) And it is exactly the opposite. The client is not us. The client is God. And it moves and it exists only to the extent that God's word is heard and accepted and followed. And so it is our goal to be passionate for the truth of the gospel The challenge of this generation and every generation is to make sure that the gospel is all that which we depend upon. Because the truth is there is a problem. And that problem is that some stray from the faith. Notice this in the text. Notice verse 6. Paul says that some are swerving from the faith. I, I like one version that says straying from the faith. One is kind of active and the other is kind of passive, isn't it? If I'm driving my car and I swerve, that means I have yanked the the wheel to go in another direction. Straying is that I've just started, uh, you know, looking at my phone too long and I find myself in the ditch. The thing is that leaving the faith happens both ways. But there is a straying, there is a swerving from the faith. But notice he says in verse 19, by the way, that word swerving from the faith is the same thing he says in chapter 6. And in verse 21 we read that some have swerved from the faith. It happened in Paul's day, it happens in our day, people swerve from the faith. But then he uses another metaphor. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. He says, some have suffered shipwreck of their faith. They've quit listening to the shining star of the gospel and began to listen to all kinds of other voices and they have run their ship ashore on places they don't want to be. Of immorality, of worldliness, and ultimately 
spiritual death. But he uses one other frame. Notice he he says, don't swerve from the faith. Don't make shipwreck of your faith. But then he says in verse 20, excuse me, verse 10, look at verse 10. He says, those who dilute the gospel are teaching things contrary to sound doctrine. That word sound doctrine there means healthy. Something that's healthy for you. In other words, if you take most of the gospel, that's healthy for you, and you add to it, you dilute it with worldly philosophies and religious traditions and religious fads, what you end up with is you end up with a meal that will make you sick. Now you put it together, and we got a problem. There's a problem of every generation swerving from the faith, making shipwreck of their faith, and getting sick. And so Paul says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, here is where the real shocking thing happens. If I were to say to you and I that we're to be loyal to the gospel, everybody game for that? I think most everybody here is game for that. How do we do it? Well, you let me come up with a test. We'll call it the SAT, Spiritual Aptitude Test. And if you score high enough on your SAT, then you get to show that you're in the faith, right? And the test has 613 questions on them, and you better get them all right. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the reason some are swerving from the faith and shipwrecking their faith is because they don't have the right character. That's where loyalty to the gospel begins. It is not that I know all of the answers. It is that I have the character of Christ. That's what Paul says. Look at verse 5. He says, I've asked you to teach them to to, to teach no other gospel. Because what some are doing is they are straying from the faith. Why are they straying from the faith? Because the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith from which some having strayed. Do you see what happens? When you don't have the right character, you will inevitably stray. Notice he says the same thing in verse 19. I'm in 19. Having faith and good conscience which some have rejected concerning the faith, have shipwrecked their faith. So my friends, whenever we do not have a primacy in our love for God and our love for lost souls, whenever we do not have a genuine and sincere faith, Whenever we are not driven by a good conscience, in other words, a life that lines up with the truth that we know, whenever we have surrendered these things, love and faith and a good conscience, we will inevitably be disloyal and betray the gospel of Jesus Christ. It begins with character. By the way, that's why Paul in this this letter is going to go on to talk about People who lead in local churches like elders and deacons and ministers of the gospel. And what's he going to say? Those folks, you identify them, not by their height, not by their wealth. You identify them by their character. Because character is what leads to truth. Now having said all of this, what Paul is encouraging, 
And in the, in the middle of this text, what Paul does is he says, I want you to look at what the gospel did to me. He gives us a very personal, a very practical illustration of what the undiluted gospel should do in the life of somebody. And so as we look at this example, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I believe in the undiluted message of the gospel? Am I loyal to the gospel? If you are, these are the things that are going to be indicative of your life. These are the things that you're going to be able to see in your life. So if you've accepted, like Paul did, the undiluted message of the gospel, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to change your opinion of yourself. The gospel is going to change the opinion of yourself. It is going to help you see your guilt. Now, human religion doesn't do that. What human religion does is it says this. We want your body to be happy and we want you to know you're a good person. So we want you to leave from here feeling good and thinking you're good. That's called American-style Christianity, and it sells in a fleshly culture. But the message of the gospel doesn't do that. The message of the gospel doesn't say, feel good, you are good. The message of the gospel says, you've not been good, you ought to feel guilty. That's exactly what Paul says it did to him. Paul says... That when he learned the gospel, everything he thought about himself was wrong. Before the gospel came into his life, he says he was completely unaware that he was a persecutor of the church. That he was in fact a blasphemer against God. That he was antagonistic towards the ways of God. Here was Paul. Before the gospel came into his life, he thought he was a pretty good guy. He felt like he was rather blameless according to the law. He felt like he was a religious person, that he served God in all good conscience. And imagine his shock when he discovered that he was in fact the chief of all sinners. That's what the gospel does, my friends. It gives us a different view of ourselves. You see, that was the greatest blessing that Paul could get. Isn't it? All Up until the time the gospel came to his life, he was self-deceived. But when the gospel came to his life and he began to see himself as God sees him, then he had the opportunity to recognize and see himself more clearly. Even though he was an Old Testament scholar and deeply religious and moral, he was destined for hell. And what the gospel did was it laid bare his pride, and his sinfulness to such an extent that Paul couldn't even conceive of anybody needing the gospel salvation more than he did. That's what Paul says. Here's the message of the gospel. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. 23, we have all sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That's the gospel message. The undiluted message of the gospel is that our sins lay bare before a holy and righteous God. In fact, you remember what Jesus said to his apostles about the gospel? He says, I'm going to 
send the Holy Spirit. He is going to guide you into all truth. And what you're going to do, he says, the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's what the gospel's supposed to do. It is to lay bare our sin. And so I wonder what, what would happen in your life or my life today if like the Apostle Paul, we were walking home today and Jesus appeared to us and said, Tim, Tim. And he began to lay out all of the sins I've committed. All of the sins I've forgotten I've committed. All of the sins I didn't even know I committed. Would I see myself more clearly? Would I see my need for Him more clearly? The gospel, my friends, will not allow us to believe our own self-righteousness. Now, I am not surprised that the message of the gospel is diluted in our culture. We don't like that message. Let's dilute that message. Let's find the parts that we like and let's talk about those a whole lot. But that sin stuff, let's don't talk about that. And yet, the gospel says we are sinners. Now, here's the second thing Paul says. The undiluted gospel tells you you're a sinner. But the undiluted gospel tells you that God loves sinners. That he is a gracious God. Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was overflowing towards me. One version puts it, was exceedingly abundant. I like that one. Now, when something's flowing over, that's a little, that's a lot, isn't it? But if it's overflowing, then it's even more. But I like the idea of exceedingly abundant. If something is abundant, that's a lot. But something that's exceedingly abundant, it's more than sufficient. And Paul says, it was the grace of our Lord that was exceedingly abundant. In other words, God's grace is great enough to cover the greatest of sins. There's no reason for us to ever think, in those moments when the gospel has laid bare your sin, don't ever think, God would not forgive me for what I have done. Can I remind you that the very first recipients of the grace of Jesus after the cross were the very ones who murdered him? You ever thought about that? That they were the ones who shouted for his blood. They are the ones who said crucify him and all he had done is nothing but good and taught nothing but what was right. And those were the very ones that God said you with lawless hands have taken and shed the blood of Jesus. And they said, what shall we do? And he says, repent every one of you and be baptized. And we just go over it so easy. Listen, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <sighs> that bowls them over. No, no doubt that later that day, 3,000 souls were baptized into Christ. They wanted the grace of God. In fact, when Paul learned that he had been persecuting Jesus on that road to Damascus, he was grieved by his sin, rightfully so, finds himself in Antioch, 
where he is fasting and praying for three days in deep grief over his sin. And God sends Ananias to him and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And his sorrow turned to joy because of the grace of God. Here is the application Paul wants us to get from this. When you accept the undiluted message of the gospel, you will revel in his grace. Notice he says again, verse 15, I read just for our enjoyment. The saying is trustworthy and desiring of full, uh, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost that I received mercy for this reason, that in me, here's his application, in me, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience, oh, thank God, his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's you and me. The fact that Paul could be saved is the reason we can be saved. Now, here's my concern. My concern is that churches today have existed long enough that we have become receptacles of the respectable. Everybody here is quite respectable. We come from respectable families. We come from respectable homes. We have a respectable name. And we find that we deserve to be here because we are rather respectable. This is our place because we are the respectable ones. We would be shocked to see what it was like to go into a a church service in the early days of the church and find people sitting on those pews that didn't look like us. They hadn't been where we've been. They've been sinners. Do they deserve to be here? Every bit as much as we, because we're just as much sinners as they are. Until we have appreciated the guilt of our own sins and the joy of God's forgiveness, His grace towards us, until we have seen that and known that and appreciated that, Paul says, you will dilute the gospel. You will set the gospel aside every time for something that you want to do. But when you know that the gospel is the only source of seeing yourself correctly, the gospel is the only source of seeing God correctly and accepting His forgiveness and His grace, you won't give up on the gospel. You won't delete it it or dilute it with a single thing. Because its purity is what helps you see yourself clearly and accept the life-giving, everlasting life-giving message of the gospel. You know, we sing it sometimes. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the lamb, the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. 
Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 31. It's repeated twice in the Hebrew letter in chapter 8 and again in chapter 10. And that is, he says, that according to in the new covenant, we have a grace in which God remembers our sins no more. That's the grace that comes from the undiluted gospel. But let me add to that. That Paul says that this grace doesn't just save us, this grace then enlists us in the service. Do you notice that? Notice in verse 11 and 12. Paul then, having said that he received this mercy, even though he was a blasphemer, he says what he got in 11 was he got the gospel entrusted to him. Verse 12, what he was given was strengthen Christ Jesus to appoint him to the service. So don't miss it. Here is the chief of all sinners that God has enlisted to be the service to all saints. Isn't that beautiful? That what God's grace does is it doesn't just simply save us, but then it enlists us in an eternal, eternally significant work. And so, he gives him a task. A task to serve. And each of us who have been saved by the gospel. Oh, look, the waters are getting stirred behind us there. That's a good sign, isn't it? So it's not a sign. What's going on back there is it's getting warm if anybody wants to be baptized. Or I'm not doing mystical here. The point I want to make is that the grace that saves us is also the grace that enlists us in the service of God. In fact, let me just read one text to you. You know this really well, but I want to make a point. It's this statement that Paul makes about his service in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, notice, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see how Paul ties together these two grace. He says, what has made me who I am, saved sinner, is the grace of God. But that grace wasn't worthless towards me. The grace of God working in me has caused me, he says, to labor more abundantly than they all. Than they all. Now, the same word is used twice here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that the grace of God was exceedingly abundant towards me. And then he says, my labor for the Lord was exceedingly abundant. See, when we have accepted the overflowing grace of God, we become overflowing in our service to him. And what that means is that we don't view our service to God as some kind of Ritual, some kind of responsibility. It is a grace that God has given to us. I love how, how Paul does that. In 2 Timothy, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about the contribution. And he calls the contribution where people give their money to help saints in the preaching of the gospel, he calls it the grace that God has given you. I like that. Service that's called, you ever feel like that's a happy thing when you take money out of your pocket and you give it to somebody else and you say, that was grace that God gave me. That's what you think when you know the undiluted message of the gospel. 
that the grace that saves you is the grace that then places you in His service and everything you do for the service of His kingdom is an expression of God's grace for you. Thank you, God, for including me in that. But the gospel won't leave you unchanged, Paul says. That undiluted gospel allows you to see yourself more clearly. You are a guilty sinner. It'll change the way you look at God. He is one who abundantly pardons and calls you to serve. And then finally, you think you can use this one tomorrow? It'll change your attitude towards life. It'll change your attitude towards life. You will live with a deeper sense of joy and gratitude. Did you notice how this paragraph about Paul's illustration of what the gospel did to his life is bracketed by praise? Notice what it says in verse 12. He begins his personal illustration with, I thank him. I thank God. And he ends his his, uh, paragraph here about his personal illustration with praise. I am praising my eternal life for my eternal life and your eternal life. I am praising the King of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God. May He have honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why do you come to see God in such terms? as you live in thankfulness to Him, and you want to praise Him for being the ruler and authority over all creation. Why do you do that? Because you've understood yourself more clearly. You're a sinner. Saved by the grace of God. Put into the the service of the kingdom of God. And therefore you live each day with a new sense of praise, of thankfulness for who God is and what God has done. The French... Painter Carreau is famous for painting a number of uh, landscapes. And they say that this famous French painter would always begin his landscapes with the sky. He painted the sky first because he said that it is the color and disposition of the sky that sets the tone for everything else in the painting. And Paul says, when it comes to life... It is the king immortal, the king of all ages, immortal, invisible. It is the God who alone is wise. It is the one to whom I deserve that I give thanks to. He's the one who colors my day. He's the one who colors my day. And so I begin my day with thanksgiving. I end my day with praise. And again, that changes the way that we serve. Well, let me ask you then. We're really excited to maintain the purity of the gospel, the undiluted message of the gospel. Have we accepted the undiluted message of the gospel? Paul says, well, look what it did to me. Did it do it to you? And then we ask ourselves these questions. How do I feel about my sins? How do you feel about your sins? You're not too bad. You're okay then you may have accepted the deluded message of the gospel. Maybe you're following a religious tradition or a worldly value. How do you feel about your forgiveness? Are you scared that God won't forgive you because of the things you've done? Maybe you've accepted a deluded message of the gospel. What do you do in service to Christ? 
Are you unmotivated about your service? Unconcerned about the lost? Perhaps you've accepted a diluted message of the gospel. And then, how thankful are you? How much do you praise God? Do you have a sour outlook on life? Do you see everything you do as another responsibility? Maybe you've accepted a diluted message of the gospel. You see, this idea of being saved by God's grace to serve in God's kingdom is something that's just seen throughout the biblical story. Paul teaches it right here in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to be to save sinners. God saves sinners. And then what does he do? He enabled me, putting me into the ministry. He saved me so I can serve. And I got to thinking about that progression and how often it's found in Scripture. And I thought, you know, it's right there in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, go into the world, baptizing the nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So go into the world and teach them that they have the opportunity to be saved, have a fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by baptizing them in their names. Great. God's grace saves. But do you remember what he goes on to say? And teach them to obey all that I have commanded you to do. The undiluted message of the gospel saves, and then it gives us the opportunity to serve. And if you're here this morning and you haven't found that, that salvation in Jesus Christ, I hope you've heard the gospel today. I hope you've heard that you're a sinner. We all are. I am, and I know it intensely. Everybody else here should. But we have a gracious God who wants to forgive you. And not just forgive you, but then use you in his kingdom. Give you eternal life. If you need to respond to the gospel, we're going to sing this song Sawyer's picked for us. And if you'd like to respond, you just come to the front. We're going to stand and sing together. We'd love to receive you. Please do as we stand and sing.